For the week of Thursday, March 14th, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we are joined by Indivisible's National Political Director to talk about the 2020 presidential primary. Mari Urbina has written a guide detailing how Indivisible groups can help nominate a strong candidate, how we can all work together during that process, and then how we can channel the political clout and grassroots power we've amassed over the last two years. Then, for years, Washington has selected delegates for Democratic presidential candidates by caucus, but that could be changing. Washington Democratic State Committee member Josh Truppen joins us to talk about why. And then we will wrap things up with our weekly call to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. So with new candidates declaring almost every week, the race for the 2020 Democratic nomination is very much underway. And we are just one year out from the Super Tuesday primary. So there is a ton of work to be done between now and then. There are a ton of questions about how we as indivisible groups and members should be approaching that work. Specifically, how can we work to make sure Democrats nominate the strongest possible candidate? How can we stay united during that process? And then how can we as indivisibles use our collective power and political class? to help push that candidate to victory. So joining us to discuss all of this is our friend Mari Urbina. She is the National Political Director for Indivisible, and she has written an explainer on the website dedicated to laying out Indivisible strategies for the primaries. And I'm so glad that she could join us. Mari Urbina, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be on. I am so happy that you're here because there's a lot to go over. And I know that people have a ton of questions um, and we'll get into some of the specifics. But, you know, you say in your guide that primaries are how we build power as progressives. Uh, Just talk, Mm -hmm. talk generally as we begin about how primaries can build our power. Sure. Happy to. So one thing I actually brought, I know how much people love stats. So I, I'm going to open up instead of instead of having a great story, I'm going to open up with a stat. Okay. Um, and this is from from the Catalyst, um, our friends over at Catalyst, who are major data vendors of, of voter contact information. So their stat is that in congressional last cycle in congressional districts with competitive Democratic primaries, turnout in the 2018 general election was an average of four percentage points higher than in those districts without competitive primaries. Mm. So I just want to start there because I think for a lot of um, the discussion around primaries, it absolutely can feel really, um, you know, scary. It triggers some some conversations that become very personal. Um, and that's because we're talking about a lot of issues that we all care deeply about. Yeah. Um, and so I'd like to start there because it's actually a great form of organizing because it gets us involved in the race much earlier. And getting involved in a primary means that you're doing your engagement, you're doing your outreach, you're shaping the race much earlier than other people can. Right. And when ind- with Indivisible specifically, we have organized and built this tremendous platform from which to speak collectively. Um, and that shows up in a lot of different ways. It shows up for candidates because that's when they're going to be listening most to us is in the primary. So if we center our issues, if we say, you know, I deeply care about environment. I deeply care about the way in which um, so many people in this country are being targeted and marginalized under this administration and previous ones, then I really want to make sure that these issues are reimagined in this field. And so that's really what I, I try to open up with is what are the opportunities here? So one, this helps us engage early. It means we're going to be more competitive and in stronger shape coming yeah. into the general 
Two, it also means from an organizing perspective that we can use this as a recruitment or a re-energizing activity. One of um, the group leaders I talked to with recently talked about how when they sent one of their emails out, one of the things that got clicked on the most was one of their questions about one of the presidential candidates. And so it's an example of it, even though it can feel, as you said, like it could feel like a thing that people um, have real uh, concerns over. It's also a thing that excites people, right? And I think for our organizing, when we think about that, we should lean into the opportunities and center it around purpose, issues, have a power analysis um, so that we don't get bogged down in in, uh, discussions or conflicts around personalities or personal attacks. Good. Okay. Well, you're hitting on that early, and I do want to kind of break that down more granularly in a moment. But basically, yeah, I think people are going to connect with what you're saying is that this is a time when we're really energized. And as you say, the earlier we get involved, the more power we're ultimately going to have at the grassroots level with these candidates. So this is all a reason to be talking about this now and a reason for people to really be engaged with this process. So your guide lays out a three-pronged approach to winning in 2020. Mm-hmm. So the first is to do everything we can to weaken Trump. The second is to work together to nominate a strong Democratic candidate. And the third prong is to grow and use our grassroots powers we've just discussed. So I do want to spend the bulk of our time on the last two, but let's just touch on the first one quickly. So when we talk about weakening Trump, how specifically? You, you mean continuing to do a lot of the work that we've been doing, right? Pressuring our elected officials, pushing for oversight, investigations, that kind of thing? That's exactly right. Um, and that's right. That feels so foundational in our DNA. And, and that's because, you know, indivisibles help push districts across the country to the left in all parts of the country, right? Like we shifted with our partners in the broader movement, the conversation in a way that was more progressive and more inclusive. Um, and that's because indivisibles early on through building town halls and district visits and being very visible and constant we were able to shape the narrative around these races, around the congressional races, in a way that shaped the narrative long before any candidate was on TV with their own paid ads. So that's really, really powerful. And so everything, all of the actions that are happening now, all of our advocacy on federal and statewide and local issues are critical to making sure that our our candidates, our elected officials, know exactly what we expect from them and know exactly what we feel about certain issues even when it feels like, oh, you know, my per- I'm in a red district or I'm in a blue district or I'm in a purple district, like, and, you know, I don't think they're listening. When they hear this, that, you know, our voice is sort of as a broader effort and a scaled effort, they hear us. They may pretend like they don't want to hear us or <laughs> they pretend that it doesn't bother them. But as we know from last cycle's record retirement from Republicans, um, they heard us loud and clear. And yeah. so it just, it is such a powerful tool. Um, it's a powerful accountability tool on the early side. And so that's what we mean by weakening comforts that we are exposing and unveiling the abuses of this administration. We're uplifting um, the real stories, the real harm, so that we can avoid more harm being done to folks that we care about in our community. So that's the first part. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of that with the congressional Democratic leadership coming in and being really clear-eyed on what, you know, building a democracy reform agenda, investigating this administration, um, making sure that they're they're um, making sure that, the, and, you know, we're all trying to make sure that the American public and voters are really clear about what's happening. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, when we get to next year, um, a lot of these things have been shaped and the narrative has been shaped and it's 
if you see, you know, you, you look at the public opinion and you look at all of these things that work together um, once we get really going on voter contact. So that's the first piece. The second piece is making sure, you know, it's kind of a lot along, along the lines of what you opened with, which is the primary gives us a chance not just to push on our issues, to build our movement, to recruit new people, to get folks newly excited, um, to, to deepen our relationships with partners, with candidates, to make sure that they are clear on what the grassroots perspective is. But it's also a great time to, you know, battle test our candidates to make sure that as they emerge out of the primary, that they feel really strong because they have an entire movement behind them, but that they also have been tested because we want to make sure that they are strong and they are ready in the general because whoever wins the Democratic nomination, we're going to line up behind them. So we want to make sure they're really ready um, to electrify our system. Yeah, and I and I want to kind of drill down on that uh, a little bit because now we're getting into the second prong, uh, which is yeah, it's about uh, working together to select uh, a candidate. And as I said in the intro, this is the area where people I think have expressed the most concern that I have seen uh, because you know a diverse array of candidates means a lot of strong opinions, and they often break across mm-hmm. ideological lines. Uh, we certainly saw that when it came down to two candidates in the 2016 election. But you say for our purposes right now that having a lot of candidates, having a lot of strong opinions is not a bad thing at this point, right? That's right. It's a great thing. I mean, again, when we when, remember that stat I opened with, which yep. was competitive primaries resulted in better and higher turnout, right? And stronger engagement. And that's what we're, we're, what we're focusing on right now. Like we have not just a, a large field, but we have a historic field and that is something to celebrate and that is something to interrogate and it's a good thing. And we should really lean into that um, and, and realize that some of what we felt last time around was also because there were fewer candidates, right? And so some of the, the feelings were, became very, very personal very quickly. And I think this large field gives us a chance to really examine the array of issues and, 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 the, and the president that we want in the White House, right? The other thing, the other reason this is important here is when we all work really, really, really hard, because it's going to be hard to take this president out. He's going to do everything he can, right? There's no illusions about how hard this is going to be. We're all going to work really hard to get it done. And when we have, when we usher in this new governance, we want to make sure that these Democratic candidates are clear on what we're expecting from them, that, that you know, they can't just come in and make false promises, that we want to see really ambitious um, governance from them, because yeah. otherwise we're going to continue to leave folks out. And our voters, they remember so I think that's the other piece of this part is that it's also not just what are the issues that we personally deeply care about, but what are the issues that are going to electrify the base of support, the base of volunteers, this sort of fundraising and excitement that these candidates are going to need to earn across a multiracial coalition to win. And that's the other thing that we have to center so we don't get right. caught up in each other's personal preferences is we need someone, we need a candidate who is going to be able to generate excitement and support from a wide array of people, of Americans all across the country. There's not one path, there are several paths to winning, and they go through all states throughout this country. And so we need someone who's going to be able to electrify people who are in multiracial communities, intergenerational um all levels of education. And, and, and that means it's our base. Our base is really diverse, right? Like no. that is just the truth. We have folks who, um, who are in, in home and community together in, in a lot of different ways. And that's, that's the beauty. Like we should celebrate how diverse we are 
and we should also celebrate that we want someone who's going to be able to to make that home, that political home, feel safe and viable for everyone who's in it. Yeah, I mean, I think it is going to be a, a little bit of a, a heavy lift, uh, just because I think expectations are so high, and um, it's you know, as as you say, we have uh, an incredibly diverse base. And so I, I, mm-hmm. I, I do want to kind of get into how we're going to make that determination down the line. But, you know, one of the things that you say that really stuck out for me on the guide was uh, in the interest of limiting the sort of infighting, you say that groups should determine which issues are most important to them and make those things known up front. And then you say to mm-hmm. make a set of commitments to one another. Uh, can you enumerate some of those commitments? Yeah. So in terms of commitments to one another, it's that, you know, we're going to root ourselves in shared empathy, that we're going to root ourselves in a process and root ourselves behind the issue, the, the things that we're trying to achieve, right? That we're, that that's what we're going to commit ourselves to, that we're going to commit ourselves to understanding, like I just laid out, that it takes a multiracial coalition to win yep. and that we need to create the right conditions for those things to be true. Yeah. And you also talk about committing to engaging respectfully uh, and also not attacking the other candidates and really especially don't criticize the supporters of those candidates. And then most importantly, we have to agree that we're all going to support the eventual nominee. Um, And that's something that I feel like at this point we should turn into a blood pact. Um, But I will also ask you, uh, are you encouraging groups to make an endorsement? And if so, at what point? We are encouraging groups to explore an endorsement. Explore and I think an endorsement. That that, okay. that, that is very real. Yeah, like you have to explore the, the opportunities, the risk assessment, and how it really is centered around purpose. And if all of those things, you, you, you reach conclusions, you know, with your, with your group or your leadership or, or, you know, whatever your process is, then we want to make sure you've also set the right thresholds for making decisions. Because no no group, right, no community, no network is ever going to reach 100% alignment. Right. And so it's to say, right, like with any organizing strategy, it's to say, like, we want to engage in this way. This is our strategy. Here are the tactics and here are the thresholds that are going to say equitably to everyone, this is how we reached a go. And so that's the most important thing. It is, it, you know, endorsing, getting involved in elections is a tactic, just the way protesting is, right? Just the way speaking out at, at a town hall is, just the way making a call to a member of Congress. Those are all tactics and levers that we use to express our power. And we express our power because we are organizers and we care about the world we live in. And so I just want folks to also think about this work from that lens, because that's what it is. The other point I just want to quickly make is that the reason that this matters is that, you know, as as indivisibles have, like we have just done some really, really like across the country remarkable things. And so with that, right, has come a lot of influence. And and so influence and proximity to power are are really just nice to have if we're not applying them in some way. Right. And so yeah. that is that is the invitation is like how, what is your roadmap and your and your assessment of how to apply that power because it is very, very it, you can leverage it in really smart ways. Yeah, we've built up a ton of clout uh, over you know the last couple of years, and now is the time for us to use it. And so I think where we're going with this is that people uh, in groups really need to be very clear in, in what particular ways we want to be directing that power. And I think that's going to become clear over the next year. Um, you talk about methods of engagement. 
engagement with candidates. Um, you talk about bird mm-hmm. dogging uh, when they make uh, appearances in your state. Bird dogging is is confronting a political figure in public with a, a specific question or issue. You also recommend being very pointed with your group's social media to either commend a candidate's position or to ask them to do better when you don't like their position on something. And it begs the question, are presidential candidates really looking at our social media and considering uh, our, our group's positions on things? They absolutely are. They absolutely are. Um, one quick example, when Castro announced that he ran, so for every every candidate who announces, we do just a quick, like, welcome to the race, congratulations tweet. Every single person gets that as like a, you know, this is a big old, you know, welcome everyone. Um, and, and his social team actually engaged with our handle immediately to say like, Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to meet individuals across the country. Oh, that's great. So for his digital team, like they engaged right away in a conversation and right that's an opening. Um, I think also some other really, really, really awesome and, and pretty timely engagement from other group leaders, indivisible group leaders across the country. Um, some New York indivisibles have also engaged in that way, like first on social and, and then it create some follow-up conversations. And so it, it is a, absolutely a powerful tool. Um, all of those digital teams are paying close attention. Um, I saw another tweet, I think out of South Carolina, uh, a couple weeks ago where one of the candidates is saying, oh, you know, looking forward to attending this this big, uh, this big grassroots event where indivisibles are going to be. And so it, it is absolutely true. I think we could do more. My, my hope is that we could do more to work together um, to create some of these opportunities and to be a little more um, systemic and organized around these opportunities. So we'll that, talk about that. How would that look in your mind? Yeah, so I would love to figure out, you know, like what does outreach look like for us, so all of the teams, all of the political teams to say, hey, we're here. Our folks are listening. They are paying attention. They, they want to hear from you. They want to ask you questions. And so my ask to candidates is, what are you doing to engage the grassroots? Are you inviting the grassroots to your debates, or is it just the party bigwigs? You know, are you um, going to events where money is not required? Are you um, answering questions by the grassroots, right, when they're asking you? Yeah. Are you reaching out to them online and offline? Like, and so those are some of the questions that we want to ask. Like, are you inviting them to debate? Like, there's, you know, there, those spaces are very, very limited, and so we want to make sure that they are reaching out to our folks and inviting them. So. I want to make sure that we're building communication flow um, on, on, you know, just making sure that all those introductions are made between the grassroots and, and us and, and them so that they are reaching out to folks um, more, you know, more broadly, not just with people that they might know. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when you talk in the guide about developing open channels with candidates, uh, it sounds like this is exactly what you're referring to. And it also sounds like you're in there making the connections personally, which is just great. You know, you also say in the guide that you are planning on working with groups to eventually make an endorsement at the national level. And this won't be an endorsement like we saw in 2018 with House candidates and Senate candidates, which were all over the country. Uh, This is the whole organization getting behind one candidate, which I imagine is a very challenging prospect. How are you approaching that? And and also, how will groups be involved with that process? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say, one, to start, just to be really clear, we, like I said earlier, we are exploring what a process would look like, but there is not a commitment to to having to endorse. 
I just want to be really clear about okay. that. Like, you know, what I lay, everything I laid out earlier about like our own overall power analysis, like why we have to think seriously about these things, why we have to think seriously about getting involved and engaging, that is part of this, right? So will we explore an endorsement process? We will. What does that look like? Well, step one is making sure we are having um, better listening and better input this time around at the earliest stages of the program. Um, in our endorsement program before, we did make sure that grassroots was at the beginning, from the beginning through the end of the endorsement process. But this time, even before a program is designed, we want to make sure that we're, we're building in much better, you know, like more robust forms of listening and and getting input across the network and so that's what i'm really excited and that we're just at the beginning of um we're we're really just at the beginning of like we had we're having more um regular national activist calls we're having more calls with some some group leaders who are part of like more uh like who are more deeply involved or maybe are more from some early stage or just like really like getting involved in this stuff and really want to be part of like a deeper sort of kitchen sink of folks who want to be involved. So I'm really excited that our organizing director, um, Susanna, she's really amazing. Um, she's thinking a lot more about how do we build this in across the organization and, and the movement so that it really is something we're thinking about more holistically, really. And so we also have, um, we were in California for the Cal- their California Indivisible Institute statewide and got to hear a little bit there during our elections breakout to hear from folks and, and, and sort of do a little bit of, of testing of some of these these concepts and working together on how to work through these concepts. And so it's going to look, I mean, right now it's still being built, so I, I, I really don't have like specific examples. Well, yeah, to- totally understood. Well, you know, I was going to mention there is a, uh, a 2020 survey that you've sent out to some groups and people have been filling that out. And I'm wondering yeah. what the feedback has been like so far. So I haven't gotten to see it yet because oh. our data people are still, you know, they're they're very strict with their data hygiene. So I have not seen it yet, but I am very eager um, to to read through it. And and you know that is exactly. Thank you for bringing that up. I'm sorry, I should have been more specific. Um, you know, that's a, a specific example of how we want to systemize the listening a little bit better. Um, and and also they just extended the deadline for responding, I believe, to April 15th, and they also are going to be sharing it out more widely so that we can get even more voices. Great. All right. You know, just a, a couple last questions. And, uh, you know, you and I were talking before we started this call that this is going to be an ongoing discussion. And so please know that you have a standing invitation to come back and talk about this uh, repeatedly over the next year, because there are going to be, continue to be questions because this is the first time for all of us as a group that we've ever gone through this process. So this is all new. Um, so but just one last question. And this is pretty broadly political. But, you know, anecdotally, I see a lot of people on social media talking about how a Electability is their number one criterion for selecting a candidate. Um, in other words, first and foremost, they want somebody who can beat Trump. And so you get a lot of theorizing about how Democrats maybe need a candidate with a moderate platform that can win in key swing states, et cetera, et cetera. And you say in the guide that we have to leave that kind of thinking behind. Talk about why. So one is that actually most people don't really agree on what electability means. And so, you know, Folks use it a lot, both with electability or being a moderate, right? Like those frames have shifted so much over time that I think it's it's kind of shorthand for, you know, it's shorthand, it's punditry, um, and, you know, people are going to use it. And, and what's dangerous about it is that, one, it really limits ideas, it limits dialogue, it limits 
what we think candidates should be um, out there being really clear on. Obviously, we want our candidates to be strong and in and ready shape in the general, but that doesn't mean they can't make their case of what their vision for the future is. And so one thing we have to remember is that electability and viability has largely been used to keep people of color and women out of positions of power. Mm. And so if we're a movement that is committed to equity and justice and a, and a democracy that's more representative, then we have to be committed to not engaging in some of those um, those sort of tropes or those frames that keep largely the same people in Congress or keep the same people in the White House. And so that's part of it, right, is like what what sort of thinking are we discouraging? What kind of big ideas are we discouraging that are going to animate our base and ultimately be, be helpful for winning? But also, how are we sort of using language that is creating real exclusion um, for people who have largely been marginalized in, in society and in government? And so that's why that matters. And, and we're movement people, right? We get it done. We don't just sit around and talk about it, um, even though we enjoy it, right? We all love talking about this stuff. But <laughs> We get out there and we get it done, and we can't get it done if we're fighting about things that are keeping people on the margins. And so we have to be really clear that there are a lot of paths to winning. There is absolutely a base that has to be motivated, right? We have to be real about getting our people out, getting all of our people out. Um, and so if, if we're not committed to getting a multiracial base out, then that's going to make it really hard for us to be clear on winning. And so. I know, and, and you know, look, I, I know that folks will say, like, it, you know, anyone but Trump, and 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 we are committed to saying we are going to beat that guy. And we're going to work really hard to beat him. But the other thing is, if we beat him, and we bring in a Democrat who's not clear on what they've just been, what what is expected from them, what they've just, what you know, our movement is asking from them, then they're when they go back and make their case to voters again, and they haven't delivered to us and building a more democratic country, then our, your, our voters are going to remember that. And so when you look back to times like 2014, right, when, when we have really bad midterms, that's, yes, midterms are tough, but also you look back and you got to think voters did not believe us, right? And, and even in some of the protest voting you saw in 2016, our base, there were parts of our base that weren't with us. They couldn't make that transition. And so it's just really important to be honest that like we need to be able to motivate our base. We think we'll, we all believe we'll be able to do that. Everyone's fired up. Everyone's united. But but it, the specifics matter. And as movement people who are committed to a more just democracy, that should matter to us. And we should be really clear that we can win and we can win with our values. Yeah. I mean, you know, you bring up such an important point, which is that electability and moderate values can be used in a way that uh, often marginalizes women, people of color, uh, members of the LGBTQ community. And so mm -hmm. we do really have to remember that the Democratic Party is a broad, diverse coalition. Um, it is it is de facto that because the Republican Party is is just so narrow. So we have to do everything that we can to include the entire coalition. And that will ideally mean getting behind a candidate with a strong, uh, firmly held set of progressive ideals uh, who can energize people. I mean, as you say in the guide, an inspiring progressive nominee can drive grassroots energy and even help sweep other progressives into office, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, as I say, this is an ongoing discussion. Uh, but for now, how can people get more information? I will, of course, have links to your primary guide on IndivisiblePodcast.org. But people can also sign up for text notifications too, right? 
Yes, that's right. Uh, um, you can text Indivisible to 97779. Um, you can follow me online if you'd like. It's at tiamari489. Excellent. I will have that uh, available at indivisiblepodcast.org as well. Mari Urbina is the National Political Director for Indivisible. Mari, thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. So in keeping with our discussion about primaries, a couple of developments. First, Governor Inslee just signed a bill to move Washington's 2020 presidential primary vote from May up to March 10th, and therefore we are almost exactly one year out. And then Washington Democrats have used a caucus to award delegates to presidential nominees, but there is a move to change our system to a primary, and your input on the matter is requested. So I thought it'd be useful to check in with our friend Josh Troopin to go over some of the pros and cons and talk about how this will all be decided. Josh is one of the state committee members from the 5th Legislative District, and so he will be one of the people deciding on this. Josh, thanks so much for being here, man. Good day. How are you? I'm great. So, you know, I should point out um, that Democrats do currently have both a caucus and a primary vote. Uh, The way it currently works is the caucus is what awards the delegates and the primary vote is essentially discarded. And so technically the choice before the Democratic State Committee is between a, quote, modernized caucus system or a, quote, hybrid primary slash caucus system, which are blends of the two. This can get very technical, but just for our purposes, we will stick mostly to primary versus caucus territory for this conversation. So first, just as a primer, let's just go over both systems. Let's start with the caucus process. Tell us how that works. Uh, So uh, the traditional caucus system that we have used in Washington state um, has three steps. The first step is a precinct caucus where um, people go to local sites like elementary schools, middle schools, and In each precinct, they talk about the candidates they like, and then they basically have two rounds of votes. And out of the precinct, um, if a precinct has four um, delegates assigned to it, you might get, you know, as in 2016, mine got three for Bernie and one for Hillary. After all the precincts around the state have decided who their delegates are for, that locks in the allocation of national delegates for each candidate. And and remind us, how many precincts are in the state? There are a bit over 7,200. Okay. Some of them larger than others. Um, So the precinct delegates move up to the second level of the caucus, which is um, done by Legislative District, Got him. or LD. Um, this was usually the stage in 2016 when people complain about how terrible the caucus was. They're usually talking about the LD caucus from 2016. Those are the ones that went until 10 or 11 p.m., and people had to wait for five hours to get all their credentials sorted out and so on. But the purpose of the LD caucus is to select two things, the delegates to the state convention, the Democratic state, which is June 2020, and also the delegates to the third and final level, which is the congressional district caucus. After all of those delegates are chosen, um, they meet um, in May 
at the Congressional District Caucuses, and that's where those delegates choose who will go to the national convention from each congressional district. So this is a winnowing down. So then there are 49 legislative districts and there are 10 congressional districts. So, Right. So you might have 100 people show up at as delegates at the congressional district caucus, and they will choose from themselves or anyone else who is interested in running to be national delegates. And then um, off to Milwaukee in 2020. Okay. Well, and how does one get to participate in a caucus? Let's say somebody wants to participate in a precinct caucus. How do they get involved with that? All you need to be is a registered voter, and you show up at the caucus where you can pre-register, and you affirm that you are a Democrat for the purposes of selection. And with a caucus system, that information is held by the state Democratic Party and no one else can get to it. Understood. And that actually is something that I want to get to in just a moment when we talk about the pros and cons of the uh, the caucus versus primary system. And then a primary uh, is much more self-explanatory. That's where every Democratic voter gets a ballot and then votes for a candidate and then delegates are ostensibly awarded accordingly. We will get to how uh, in just a bit. But yeah, so let's go ahead and break down the pros and cons on each side. So since we currently have a caucus, let's start there. Um, you've participated in caucuses. What are the upsides? What have you liked about it? Well, the upsides of the caucus are that you get involved. Um, you have people from almost every precinct in the state showing up to express their preference. Uh, you get to meet neighbors. Um, there are many legislative districts who did some fundraising around the caucus, so it's more expensive in terms of initial setup and volunteer labor, but uh, a lot of districts are able to do that smartly and actually either break even or turn a small profit on the caucus uh, experience. Okay. And then you talk about um, how the party keeps the data collected and that that's important. What data are we talking about and why is that important? So in order to vote for who you want to be the Democratic nominee, uh, the DNC, which writes all the rules for these, uh, requires that you affirm that you are actually a Democrat. And that can, since we don't register by party in Washington state, that is always a big issue. There are a lot of independent people who will go to a caucus and they will affirm that they're a Democrat for the day because they like one of the candidates. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Well, so then yeah. let's talk about some of the negatives that, that people have called out. Um, what are some of the, the cons regarding caucuses? So the caucuses can get pretty crowded in contested years like 2008 and 2016 and probably 2020. Um, there have been issues with access accommodations, uh, the fact that if people are working, they might not be able to make it on caucus day. Uh, if people have other accessibility issues, they might not be able to make it. Um, in 2020, any caucus plan that's presented will include no excuse absentee ballots. So the DNC rules have tried to address some of those past issues. 
Got it. I understand that people with disabilities and parents have also had, a, a, you know, accessibility issues with the caucuses. Yes. Um, as you mentioned, they can be quite lengthy. Um, they're meant to last a couple of hours, but can last sometimes six or seven hours. Um, and then I, I suppose the con that I hear most often is that it it disregards the voice of voters who uh, choose a candidate in the primary. Uh, so, for example, Hillary Clinton won the state primary in 2016, but Bernie Sanders was awarded 73 percent of the delegates. Um, is that one of the reasons why people are upset by the 2016 caucus? Well, it might be. I prefer not to go back and look at it in that way because every cycle is different. And in in 2020, it could be that um, Senator Sanders has the name recognition and he's showing up in the top of the polls now. And that can help you in a primary versus a caucus where an underdog can gather more supporters and show up. So, sure, so it can we, cut both ways. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, so, we really can't tell. Yeah. So then under an improved, quote unquote, modernized caucus, what are some of the ways that these issues would be addressed? So the modernized um, caucus system that is being proposed um, have no excuse absentee ballots. Um, you be able to either request one or possibly even file it online so that you will not have to show up and have your preference recorded in person unless you want to show up. Okay. So we're still in the process of building the absentee system entirely. Um, the caucus system will probably, again, cost us a bit more upfront and will cost some more volunteer time to get that implemented. All right. So let's switch over then and talk about the pros and cons of a primary. So what are the upsides to switching to a primary system? Well, it you know, it sounds simple. Um, everyone in the state gets a ballot. Um, we are going to automatic voter registration. So basically every adult in the state uh, will get a ballot and then they have to choose between Republican or Democrat, which one to return. However, uh, there are other issues that are still being worked out. And, you know, a lot of people said never again to a caucus. Um, but a lot of the problems they saw, again, were at the second level, which was the LD caucus. Um, primaries will definitely get more votes. Um, however, either plan, either a primary or caucus plan, you end up having delegate selection through the same LD caucus as you had in 2016. And that's where a lot of the big logistical problems actually fell. So that's the hybrid process that we're talking about then. Right. And that's the only process that it will be under um, consideration for a primary. So if you compare the two, if you have a precinct caucus, then all the attendees that you have to check in at the LD caucus are the set list of delegates who advanced from the precinct caucus. So you might get a thousand people that you know will show up at the LD caucus. If we go with a primary, every voter in an LD who affirms that they're a Democrat can show up and they will all need credentials to vote. So we could, instead of a thousand people, get 5,000 people showing up at this LD caucus and have to go through a list of a hundred thousand people to check them all off. 
So we could also get 40 people, which would all be the party people who always show up every month. Um, so the hardest part of the caucus, which is the LD caucus, could get easier or could get way more difficult in a primary system. Yeah. Yeah, I see. So it really is market territory there because you really don't know what's going to happen until the process is uh, officially underway. And, you know, you're kind of getting into this already, but talk about some of the downsides to the primary process as you have laid it out. Uh, One of the issues you've already pointed out, which is that everybody will get both a Democratic and Republican ballot. So you can kind of see where Republicans could wreak some havoc here, right? Well, it's of course, possible because uh, we expect that the Republicans are really only going to have one candidate on their ballot, um, Mr. Trump, if he is you know, still a free man in 2020. <laughs> if he's not wearing orange um, by then, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, but it could be that Republicans will get the ballot and say, we, we already know Trump is a nominee, so let's vote for Howard Schultz for instance, as right. the Democratic nominee. Um, I, I don't know that that is going to be the biggest concern, um, but there are some other interesting downstream effects of a uh, primary. Uh, so with the state party, really, our data about who voters are, uh, how they lean, and so on, is really the only tangible asset that a political party has. Everything else, you have you know, some banners and ribbons and things, but the most important thing is your data and how you're able to use it. Now, you know, we've just spent two years refreshing our list of who leans Democrat by going around, you know, knocking doors, talking to as many people in the state as we can. Yeah, the PCOs and, did all that hard work. Yes. So in a caucus system, the party runs that. So only the party gets that data. Now, the issue begins when you have the primary, where after the primary, everyone who has voted says, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. The Republican Party will be able to get a list of everyone who has affirmed that they are a Democrat, which is basically the equivalent of two years of door knocking all at once. Ah, the data gets shared then. And yeah, I can see that would be pretty problematic. So they can turn around, combine that with other data. They can give it to the next Cambridge Analytica or the Russian clickbait farm or, you know, even to local activists who decide they're going to just take the list of everyone who's a Democrat and match it up with the list of state employees and start demanding email from them, freedom of information requests, for instance. Something else that is worth considering is something called the 15% rule. So this primary uh, would have a 15% threshold that only candidates that pass that are eligible to advance. Uh, But given how many candidates we potentially may have, there's the possibility that maybe only one candidate, say like Joe Biden, gets 15 percent and therefore gets all the delegates. Um, That potentially leaves 85 percent of people not having their candidate uh, of choice get a delegate, right? Right. So the 15 percent rule will apply at the congressional district level. So um, the first CD, eighth CD, 10th CD might all have slightly different balances, but in the past, they've been fairly consistent between congressional districts. And 
No, right now we're looking at some polls. There was, I think, a Harvard-Harris poll in January where Biden had like 24 percent and he was the only candidate who got over the 15 percent mark. So 24 percent of voters would choose 100 percent of the state delegates. So that could be a problem. Um, most recent polls are showing Biden and Sanders as the only two candidates over 15 percent. So they might combine for 40 to 50 percent and split all our delegates. Um, now, with the primary, once the vote is final, it's final. It's locked in and you can't change that at all. Um, with the precinct caucus system, it's a form of ranked choice. So maybe you like Elizabeth Warren and she's at 9 percent, but you know that Kamala Harris is at 13 percent and you see how things are going in your precinct. Um, and you know that Kamala is about one vote away from getting one of the delegates out of your precinct, you can change your vote before that's final and get Harris delegate or two from your precinct. So that form of ranked choice might mean that instead of 50% of everyone getting their candidate that they like, 80 or 90% do. And that is one of the benefits that is underrated with a caucus system. Yeah. And I mean, given how many candidates we may have come convention time, those delegates can add up and may prove to be important. So, you know, just one last thing I'd love to get your thoughts on, and that is the moving up of the primary. As I said, Governor Inslee just signed a bill that would move the primary from May to March. Uh, how do you see this? I think that overall, this is a good idea because it really can make us more relevant because the races are not decided by the end of March. Uh, we're, I believe we're a week after Super Tuesday, so things will start to shake yeah. out right around, you know, a couple of weeks around us on either side. But it also means, as with, you know, the previous examples, you might have five or six still viable candidates, whereas in May, you're pretty much down to one or possibly two in almost every instance. And that, that's what happened with the Republicans in 2016. So they actually chose who their delegates were at their state convention, and they chose 40 people who were all behind Ted Cruz. Then a month or two went by, and in the Republican primary, Donald Trump got 74% of the vote, I think. So they had 40 Ted Cruz backers who were bound to vote for Donald Trump at their convention. So they, they're not that bright the way they did. So this is a bit, either way that we choose will be better than uh, what the Republicans have done. Yeah, well, low bar there. Uh, and, and I think ultimately the argument in favor is in making Washington more relevant in the primary process. So uh, the decision regarding the caucus versus primary system will be made by the Washington State Democrats State Central Committee, which you sit on. The committee is asking for people's feedback, and people can offer that up at their legislative district meetings. There are a number of them coming up for this very purpose, so check with your LD. The deadline for comments is April 4th, and the vote will happen on April 7th. Josh Troopman, thanks as always, man. It's good to hear from you. Thank you so much for having me. And finally this week, you guys, we check in with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th District, and we will get our calls to action. Hey, Stephen. 
Hey, how's it going, Stefan? Good. So, look, this week's actions are all aimed at the House. And first, we were going to talk about, uh, as a call to action, a resolution requiring that Robert Mueller's report gets released to the public and to Congress. That is House Congressional Resolution 24. But it was just voted on in the House moments ago, and it passed 420 to zero. So just a little context here. Uh, A.G. Uh, William Barr said in his confirmation hearings that he would not guarantee that he'd make the findings public. So this resolution just passed unanimously. Uh, what sort of teeth does this resolution have? That's a really good question. So what this resolution does, it's, it's called a sense of the Congress resolution, and it's a, effectively a way for the House and the Senate to get together to express what their position is or what their feelings are about um, important matters. Now, another interesting thing I've learned about sense of Congress resolutions are apparently they do not go to the president and uh, he does not sign them. They, it's simply a statement of what Congress's position is, and so it can't be vetoed, right. um, and it doesn't even go to the president. So, so effectively, as I said a couple times, it's it's their way of saying, here's what we think is important. And um, I've, I've never really read one closely before and, until you know we decided to talk about this one. And, and what it does is it gives you a whole bunch of whereas statements, meaning you know, whereas this fact exists and whereas that fact exists, and therefore we feel that, um, you know, there's just two sentences in there, that the um, report should be made public to the maximum extent allowed by law, and we think that the Mueller report should go to Congress. So that's that's fundamentally um, mm. what it does. There's no penalty um, if William Barr doesn't do it, um, but it very clearly sends a message in a couple of ways. You know, number one, here's Congress saying this is what we think um, in this case uh, the special prosecutor and the um, attorney general should do. And the other thing it does is it expresses that this is such a widely held viewpoint that even Republic, not one single Republican yeah. thought that it was a bad idea um, that it should be made public to the maximum extent practicable and that the report should go to Congress. Well, OK, so then what happens next? Because you would imagine that there would be pressure on Mitch McConnell to take this up in the Senate. What's your prediction as, as to how that's going to go? You know what? That's uh, that's a great question. And I, um, before this passed, I would have said, you know what? He's not going to take it up. And, and in fact, he still may not take it up. But again, that's the you know the beauty of these messaging bills is uh, obviously there was some calculation among the House Republicans that boy, it's a really bad look to say we're against um, you know any of this information coming out in public, and knowing that it's quote unquote toothless or you know there's no penalty. Mitch McConnell may say, you know, there's there's virtually no down, uh, you know, downside to passing it, and there's a whole lot of downside to stonewalling it. So maybe they'll just try and pass it as quietly as possible. But you know, it's anybody's guess. I guess would be my my answer. I, I wouldn't try to make a prediction. Yeah, uh, I guess we're just gonna have to wait and see what happens. But uh, again, yeah. pretty. Uh, it's it's a pretty. St- 
startling uh, result uh, this morning, 420 to zero on a vote for HCR 24. So we'll just keep an eye on that. So um, let's shift over and talk next about the Medicare Negotiation and Competitive Licensing Act. Now, this would give Medicare the power to negotiate with drug companies over the price of prescription drugs, which would ostensibly bring the prices down. This is H.R. 1046. Now, the government is the largest purchaser of prescription drugs in the United States uh, currently drug manufacturers get to set the drug prices. So tell us how this would work under 1046. Uh, you bet. You know, there's a number of factors that are driving the high cost of medical care in the United States. Um, and this bill doesn't make any attempt to comprehensively tackle all those things. But what it does do, as you were just saying, Stefan, is to really leverage the purchasing power of the American government in one area, specifically the area of high drug prices, um, to try and, and um, force uh, those prices to be a little bit more uh, affordable for American consumers. So what uh, 1046 is something that's a, a little bit new, um, and it was kind of gratifying to see that Indivisible thought this was a real high priority for us to talk to our members of Congress about. So what uh, yeah, agreed. Um, <laughs> this, this kind of a mouthful, the Medicare Negotiation Competitive Licensing Act, H.R. 1046, what it would do is it gives Medicare the power to um, effectively negotiate with drug companies and, and bring lower price, bring drug prices down in, in, by giving two mechanisms. So number one, um, what it'll do is it gives the um, Secretary of Health and Human uh, Services, I think uh, Mr. Azar, um, he would be required to negotiate prices that are covered under Medicare Part D, which is the, you know, the drug coverage of Medicare. And that's most drugs in, in America are covered yeah. under Medicare Part D. So what that'll do is that, as, as you were saying, that'll give that huge um, negotiating power of the government that, you know, pays for all of these drugs under Medicare to negotiate directly with um, drug manufacturers and say, well, we think this is a fair price for this drug. Now, if they're not able to come to an agreement for any reason, then the secretary would be required to issue a competitive license. And what a competitive license means is that generic producers of the drugs would be allowed to manufacture uh, competitors. So either by negotiating directly with the manufacturer um, and, and you know, knowing that the next step is, well, there can be generic versions of the drugs if I don't agree with the government, either the government will get a direct agreement with the manufacturer or they're going to say, fine, we couldn't agree, so now there's going to be generic versions of this drug available. Either way, um, either more competition or, or a better direct negotiation price. R really a pretty, good, uh, a pretty good bill, it looks like, if yeah. we can take the Senate, uh, convince the Senate to take it up. Well, that's the thing, and this could ultimately be one of those Democratic messaging bills that we've talked about that makes it out of the House, but uh, – I would imagine that uh, pharma companies have a, quite a bit of weight to throw around in the Senate, uh, particularly among Republicans, and that may prevent it from going anywhere in the Senate. But uh, we are asking our Democratic representatives to co-sponsor 1046, so you know what to do on that, gang. Um, and then, finally, there is H.R. 7. This is the Paycheck Fairness Act. Um, and this uh, call to action is specifically for people in Representative Schreier's district, that's the 8th district, because she sits on the House Education and Labor Committee, and the bill is currently before that committee. So first, just briefly, tell us what the Paycheck Fairness Act is and what it would do. 
Uh, absolutely. So uh, actually, there there is by now both a House and a Senate version. Yeah, and, and right. We'll and we'll get to that in just a second. Yeah, y- you betcha. Fundamentally, what the Paycheck Fairness Act does, as, as I'm sure your listeners know, um, you know, there's a real wage disparity uh, between men and women in America. Um, women in the United States who work full time year round typically paid um, 80 cents for every dollar. Uh, that, in that 2019, are, this is happening. It's just it's just mind boggling. Yeah, exactly, it's still happening, maddening. Um, it, it, and exactly part of the reason is because there's not a great mechanism, even though we know this is the case. And and again, just a further, we know that wage disparity is even worse. Um, for people of color, for women of color. Um, and that's because it's too easy for employers to get away with pay discrimination. So what this bill will do is it will make it easier for employees to pursue uh, discrimination cases against um, employers and, and to force them to give back um, you know, back pay uh, and, and you know, whatever they've been withholding, um, and, and I think even penalties. And so you know, employers are going to be a lot less willing to um, you know, expose themselves to that risk, right. um, you know, to the, to the penalty of, uh, you know, big um, damages suits and have to go, you know, give not only the back pay back, but, but here's damages for, for not paying equal pay for equal work. They'll be so concerned about the penalties that they'll be a lot more likely. It, the theory would be they would be a lot more likely to, to not expose themselves to that and just say, you know what, we really have to um, do everything we can to make sure we're given equal pay for equal work. Well, so obviously this is an extraordinarily worthwhile bill, and and by my lights, and I think most people's uh, most people listening would agree, um, way overdue. Um, so right now we are asking. Representative Schreier to push for markup in the committee that she sits on, which, again, is the House Education and Labor Committee. Um, tell us what markup means. You bet. You know, you know, the schoolhouse rock version of what, you know, how, how bills go and <laughs> yeah. get passed. So bills get introduced. And before they go to the floor of either the House or the Senate to be voted on, they have to be reviewed, a hearing held. They, they have to be worked on in the committee that has jurisdiction for that for that bill. So in the case of H.R. Uh, 7, the Paycheck Fairness Act, the committee in the House that has jurisdiction over that bill is the uh, Education and Labor Committee. And one of the Democratic members of the House uh, Education and Labor Committee is uh, from the 8th Congressional That's District, right. uh, Congresswoman Kim Schreier. Yep. Exactly so. So when, when, we, when you hear the term markup, what that means is that the committee – that has jurisdiction for that bill has held hearings. They've heard from experts. Uh, the experts have made recommendations. The members of the committee have offered amendments. They've looked at it. They've said, hey, you know what? I think we can tweak the bill this way, that way. They, they mark it up, changes that they want to make. They offer amendments. The amendments are voted up or voted down. And then at the end of that process, the hearings and the markups and the voting, then what comes out of the committee is the bill, the original bill, as modified um, so that the committee says, hey, you know what, we now believe that this bill is ready for the whole House um, to review, perhaps offer a few amendments on, because generally on the, on the House floor there's not a lot of amendments that can be offered, um, and, then, and then the full House would vote on it. So that markup is a really key um, event in the life of a bill. And in fact, one of, one of the things that they're trying to do, or that they were pushing, we're asking that uh, the committee do ask uh, Congresswoman Schreier to do is if this bill could be marked up before Equal Pay Day 
on April 2nd. So Equal Pay Day is the day that women have to work until to, to be able to make as much uh, women as uh, money as a man. You know, men and women both start working on April 2nd. Um, then they finally get, you know, they get the same amount of money. So uh, with that Equal Pay Day coming up on April 2nd, we'd really like to have this house bill marked up by then okay. so that it could start moving to the House floor after Equal Pay Day. Right. So the timer is running on that. And so we would yeah. like uh, people to mention that if you are calling from the 8th District, uh, if you're calling Dr. Kim Schreier's office, uh, do mention that we would like to have this uh, passed on the floor uh, before April 2nd, which is, as you say, equal payday. Now, it likely will not get consideration in the Senate, but there is a Senate bill, as, as we uh, touched on earlier, and that is S-270. And I know that Senator Murray is the ranking member in the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee. Uh, we're asking for a markup in that committee, correct? That's exactly right. So we've got some unique leverage here in um, Washington State. Um, the, the companion bill to, uh, to the House bill we were just talking about, you just mentioned, Senator Murray is the sponsor of that bill. And Senator Cantwell has already co-sponsored that bill as well. So we've, we've got, uh, um, you know, our members of Congress are really leading the way on, on this issue. Yeah. And, and exactly as you just said, we, we want the same thing to happen in the Senate committee that's 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 happening or that we hope to happen in the house committee we want the committee to review it we want them to mark it up we want them to offer it on the on the senate floor um so that the the full senate can vote on it there are a couple of obstacles in the senate that we don't have in the house number one democrats are not in the majority so senator murray is just the ranking member there's actually a republican whose name escapes me at the moment who's actually the chairman of the committee he decides um, what the committee will and won't take up so, so that he may even allow hearings on this bill. So that would certainly be the first thing we want to uh, advocate for Senator Murray. Please make sure that you work with your, um, you know, congressional you know, the committee chairman to bring this bill to a hearing in the committee. They may hear it. They may mark it up. They may even, you know, offer it to the full Senate. Mitch McConnell then will decide whether the, the Senate will hear it or not. Um, it'd be a crime if they don't hear it, but or if they don't vote on it. Um, but but I would say probably a few things are going to need to change in the, in the Senate before Mitch McConnell decides he's going to bring S two seventy to the floor for a vote. Yeah, I, I would say unfortunately I, I agree with you on that. So the action there is to call and thank uh, Senator Cantwell for her support, and then also to call Senator Murray uh, as the ranking member in the committee that is marking it up and ask her to push that along. Okay, Stephen, as always, thank you for your uh, your expert thoughts and perspective. We always appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next week. My pleasure. Talk to you soon, Stefan. So just a couple of quick orders of business before we go. First, a big thank you to the wonderful members of Wallingford Indivisible for having me as your guest on Monday night. It was so great to meet all you guys. Also, as I said previously, there are upcoming LD meetings where you can go and weigh in on the primary versus caucus issue that we discussed with Josh Troopin. But leaders of the 43rd LD Dems would like to officially invite listeners in their district to their monthly meetings. They meet the third Tuesday of every month. So coming up, that is March 19th. And it'll be at 7 p.m. at the Finney Ridge Neighborhood Center Lower Building. That is at 6615 Dayton Avenue North off Finney Avenue North, just before North 67th Street. And if you are wondering if that is your district, the 43rd covers much of Seattle, including downtown, Capitol Hill, Wallingford, UW, and extends north to south from Green Lake to First Hill and from east to west from Lake Washington to Fremont. 
And that's going to do it for this week's show. Hey, do me a quick favor, if you don't mind, and head over to iTunes and rate the show. It really does help. And thank you to everybody who has already done that. As always, for links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. And I would love it if you would subscribe while you are there. Also, please keep the emails and feedback coming. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Mari Urbina and Josh Trupin. Special thanks to Luis Sanchez. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.